You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. It's been quite a week. The World Health Organization has declared the coronavirus a pandemic. Trading on the stock market was halted briefly as Wall Street saw its biggest drop on Monday. And now economists are facing the reality of the R word. The Council of Revenues downgraded its state forecasts, now projecting there there may be $300 million that we can't count on in our tax coffers. Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics sat down with us earlier this week. Since the beginning of the year, he'd been warning the community to brace itself. To me, it looks like something between SARS and 9-11. It could get as bad as one. It's probably at least as bad as the first. Um, The big difference, of course, is that nobody in Hawaii had SARS. So it was contained quickly. Whereas this time, containment has not succeeded notwithstanding similar zoonotic origins. And uh, so here we are. I heard that someone say that, uh, you know, we're beyond containment. You know, cats out yeah, of the we're, Yeah, we're on, we're, past, we're somewhere between containment and mitigation. Yeah, I, I agree. So we've been seeing the stories about the cruise ship business. Uh, we've seen stories about how bookings are down at the hotels. I don't know maybe up to 30%. What's your feel as to, I mean, are we in a recession or not? Yeah, Hawaii's probably at risk of recession. I'm not sure we're in one. Um, I'm not sure anybody actually knows that tourism last year already was in recession. That is, real tourism receipts in 2019 declined. They didn't increase, they decreased. Um, why the state doesn't want to talk about that, I don't know. But if it's one of these things, if the state doesn't make it official by announcing it, then it never becomes part of the discussion. And it seems to have been what the plan was with the coronavirus. So if we don't test for it, then we won't know if there is any. And we can say that there isn't, and nobody can dispute it. it seems like a really odd way of going about engaging people in collective action and, you know, designing public policy. But to your question, if tourism was already slipping last year and other economic indicators, uh, you know, exhibited a, a degree of impairment that you didn't see in the rest of the U.S., then if we're not in recession, we were already at the brink of it, and this definitely could push us down into it. When we talk about the coronavirus and we see where things have gone with the rest of these countries and how fast it's moved. It, it is surprising, uh, you know, some countries are, are, are doing so many tests a day. And, you know, we did have the gift of time, but did we use that time wisely? My, my impression is that the lack of testing until March 4th, 2020, we should remember there was an actual date that the state conducted its first test. But that, um, but that month, was a precious one, and that the reason containment is less likely now is that the testing never occurred. So we we weren't aware of its presence. We're, we can't even assert that it was present, but this seems a lot of suspicion that it must have been, or at least might have been. I mean, we, we started with the Japanese couple in late January, early February, they got back to Tokyo on February 6th and went straight into the hospital, as the husband did. And they were on Maui and Oahu. And and now we're hearing people having returned from Asia, found themselves sick, but were unable to have been tested under the protocols. To be fair to the stage, they were following guidelines that, in retrospect, just seem idiotic. And, I mean, to the point where you would say, why would I follow that guideline? I mean, you know... They're testing 100, they tested 140,000 people in Korea or something as of last week. What the hell? We tested 19 as of today in Hawaii, and I don't, we, missed a, we missed a moment there. Testing allows you to identify what, whether a problem exists and where it exists, if it exists. If you know where it exists, then you can start to work on the containment part of it. If you know who has it, then you can think about who those persons may have come into contact with and, you know, design your response uh, accordingly. And so we've we seen, went for a month without knowing any of that. 
We've seen cases also in Washington State and California, and those are two areas where we get a lot of domestic visitors. You know, Japan, obviously, um, the biggie. Uh, but that's got to make some people nervous in the tourism business. There's two issues, right? There's, are you going to get sick if you're on the plane or on the cruise ship? That's one issue. And then there's a second issue, which is, are you going to get sick in the place that you're traveling to? Are you going to get sick in the destination? What differs from SARS in this case of the novel coronavirus is that um, concern about getting on a plane existed, but nobody was going to get SARS when they got to Hawaii. And the problem right now is that we have confirmed cases, but what's even more obvious because of the uncertainty created by not having tests available is that there could be more exposure already. And it's, it's that uncertainty alone is what, you know, makes people crazy. And so they, you know, they're, people are risk averse and they choose to defer their travel to Hawaii. They can wait till a time when probability of becoming infected is uh, declining. And that's what they're doing now. They're choosing to cancel trips already planned and deferring trips or gatherings that um, they had in mind but have now decided are imprudent. We have seen the situation with the, the cruise industry. What's your take on that? Well, it's unfortunate that cruise ships provide a natural environment for uh, rapid spread among large numbers of people of infectious disease. And when they're, you know, crossing the ocean to get to Hawaii, uh, they also provide a, an incubation period. So they've had bad luck, that, that part of the industry. The same thing in principle could happen in airplanes or in hotels and any places, any place that people are gathered in large numbers in close quarters. This is, you know, and the reason why urban environments are so contagious. So I think a bit of it is bad luck, and it might be an overreaction to, you know, say don't come here for a while. But it could be the prudent thing to do at the state we're in now, having seen a failure at containment and having us begin to shift gears towards mitigation. Right. We saw what happened in Japan. We're watching what's happening in Oakland, California. I think there's another cruise ship uh, off the Caribbean that's kind of on hold. It seems like we're learning from these experiences. So the first thing we learned is don't leave everybody on board. <laughs> and then the, and the, because that's what happened in Japan. And then if you leave everybody on board, then it just keeps spreading. But then it's a tricky thing to remove 2,500 passengers and 1,000 crew and, you know, move them to a, a quarantine where each of them essentially has to be isolated or, or at least small groups, couples maybe. In the case of, of the Grand Princess now in Oakland, I believe the crew is going to stay aboard. Wow, that sounds like that's a scary thing right there for them. But it seems it seems as if we're learning by doing in all these cases. Well, I, I know the lieutenant governor did call on the White House to basically ban cruise ships for 60 days here. Vice President Pence kind of stopped short of doing something draconian, but did say, hey, if you have any underlying health issues, maybe don't risk it. It's a little tricky to have an industry cease and desist. I mean, we have constitutional protections for interstate commerce, for example, that has to be uh, has to be kept in mind. And, and there's jurisdictional issues, right? You know, you're the LG of Hawaii, but you're not the LG of any state on the U.S. mainland. So I, I'm I'm glad they've engaged in a discussion with the federal government because it really is a federal decision. Well, we are at the start of what would be, I guess, peak cruising season. Without prevention, without vac vaccination available, and sounds like that's going to be a year or more. You, you have to either prevent the virus from spreading at all, which is the containment part, or, you know, deal with it once it's there, and we're, we're right there in the middle. We're, we're fortunate that at the moment, I think we'll know more about this in a week or so, uh, because the testing is now becoming... Uh, possible in Hawaii. But at the moment, we really don't know how extensive exposure is. We There's a certain reassurance that comes from what we're learning, which is that younger people don't seem to be as 
has badly affected and and uh, mortality is seems concentrated primarily in in the elderly for which added precautions and protections are going to have to be concocted so there's that sort of reassurance that things like asymptomatic experiences are, are probably more widespread than we than we can enumerate at the at the present time still you know there's a risk here and people are responding to it that, and so the economic consequences of what we're seeing are a product of people's rational decision making in the face of uncertainty and and risk and unfortunately for Hawaii and that's why I mentioned earlier we see this before anytime uncertainty is this extensive and potentially catastrophic you know it's easy to decide not to get on an airplane go to Hawaii. So that's where we're at right now. We're seeing the numbers drop very quickly. I'm, I'm going to guess right now that we're going to have a really hard period for a couple months. It's going to be a tough end of the winter and a tough climb out, I imagine, in the spring. And then the big question mark for tourism and therefore for the economy in Hawaii as a whole is whether we can you know, stabilize and recover by the summertime. Summer's a big season. So you know, if we forego summer in 2020, it'll be a lot harder than if things come back, let's say, by May. From a policy policy point of view, do you think the lawmakers are going to have to mark up their plan this session? I mean, with minimum wage and and all these ambitious things that they announced that they were going to do at the the beginning of session? Uh, You know, I've heard from some of legislators' legislative leadership that they are having to pivot because of the nature of circumstances. Uh, in terms of policy recommendations, I mean, besides the obvious constraint that revenue growth almost certainly will not be what people had in mind at the outset of this legislative session, um, but, you know, that doesn't mean many of those uh, items on this new agenda that, they, that people seem to be gravitating toward couldn't be pursued down the road, but we have to switch, obviously. We have to pivot to, you know, short-term immediate concerns, which are going to involve employment, the adequacy of the unemployment insurance fund. You know, how are you going to back that up if the fund proves not to be adequate? What would the plan uh, for that be? And then, you know, there are different ways of, if 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 the point is to help the economy in the longer term, then some of the, what was in the plan before makes sense. But if the you know, if you have to do things in the short run, then maybe the help comes in different forms. So, for example, you hear people talking about fiscal stimulus. Well, we're not talking about building bridges or, you know, infrastructure investment. We're talking about, you know, financing the health response, right, making sure people can get treatment. Maybe even, I mean, if this is an identifiable disease that's, you know, different from everything else, maybe that's where the money needs to go uh, in the short term. Um, and there are populations, you know, like like the homeless population, uh, obviously the elderly, and uh, you know, persons in lower income uh, quantiles. Uh, those households tend to be at higher risk because uh, you know lower incomes leads to poorer nutrition and uh, and you know a host of other you know structural contributors to vulnerability that um, don't exist uh, in more wealthy households. So those are. I would imagine those are the kinds of things that people will have to start talking about very quickly here. That was economist Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics talking about the impacts of COVID-19 pandemic. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. This week on Says You. My favorite is when you see an escalator that says dogs must be carried and then you can't get on it because you don't have a dog. (laughs) I've thought of that myself so many times. 
It's a shame people don't let you borrow their dogs just to get on an escalator. A game as fast as it's fun, and everyone's a winner, says you. Tonight at 6.30, following Marketplace. Our reality check today with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Uh, they feature a story about the Council of Revenues now forecasting no growth. Business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us this morning. Hi there. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. So, yeah, we had a, a, a big uh, meeting yesterday with the Council of Revenues, and they have said, eh, <laughs> not so good. Yes. Yes, that's right. Well, as we heard in the previous segment, the economy is expected to take a big hit because of the um, coronavirus. And this means a hit to uh, tax revenues. And we're looking at something like a $3 million hit uh, when you factor in what they were, the growth they were expecting, including about uh, $22 million uh, less for the rest of this fiscal year. Uh, the fiscal year ends July 1st, and then we head into the 2021 fiscal year. Um, so yeah, this is less money to pay for all the all the services that the state provides. And uh, I know that uh, this morning was the first meeting of the special committee of the task force that House Speaker Scott Zeike, um called into action. So we'll have to see what comes out from that. Yes, we will. I mean, the the it, it's a really tough time right now for the legislature, the the money committee people uh, who are dealing dealing with the budget and and the leadership. You know, as we know, there's been a big push to uh, create some programs to to really help people. Uh, Seventy million dollars for uh, working families um, to people really on the cusp here. Uh, who are struggling to get by, uh, $200 million for affordable housing. Um, now, as far as that goes, uh, my colleague Blaze Lovell uh, spoke to uh, Senator Donovan Dela Cruz, who's the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, and Senator Dela Cruz said, you know, now more than ever, we need to make sure that people really on the cusp um, can, can get the help they need so that suggests that he's he's committed to this seventy million dollars in um, benefits and 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 tax benefits for for working families. Uh, the question is, uh, where does that money come from? And it's a tough job, right? You know, we've got to balance the the budget. Um, but as uh, Paul Brubaker said, you know, the House leadership or in Senate, um, you know, the leadership uh, teams from both houses, you know, saying we need to pivot. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be tough. It's it'll be really interesting to see. Uh, it looks like this is going to be here for a while, for a year or so, uh, before we start to see things turn around. Just in terms of the whole fiscal changes, um, small businesses are seeing it. We went around, we talked to people. It, it's starting to trickle through the economy, um, and again, the big picture is a very big blow. The University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization. Um, uh, economists predicting, as you reported, uh, there uh, something like a $1.7 billion drop in tourism revenues uh, this uh, year um, I know, compared to last year. Yeah, and, and we do worry about the small businesses. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, they, again, we talked to some. I talked to I talked to the people at, at the t-shirt shop that caters to Japanese tourists. Oh, yes, 88 Yes, we know yeah. it well. And, yeah, and I asked uh, the owner, uh, had she seen a drop? She said, yeah, definitely. It's hard to quantify. Um, there were people, there were some tourists in there when I was there, so that's good. But it's just a concern for businesses throughout the community. Yeah, I did check in with the Waikiki uh, Improvement Association, and they were saying, yeah, you know, the crowds have thinned a bit. Yeah, it's um, it, it again, it's very hard to see. There's still a lot of people. That's that's what's hard. You know, we still see a lot of people down there, but just statistically, uh, it there are fewer people and fewer people spending money. And we did hear early on how Chinatown was taking a hit as well, uh, just because of people's fears. Yeah, I, I spoke to some people down there. One of the interesting things was uh, along Hotel Street, where we have a lot of new restaurants and, and bars, some of the trendier places, uh, one of the, the manager of, of the pizza place along there 
said that they haven't seen it yet. And it might be a function of the clientele. Maybe a lot of local people who still want to go out to eat and do things are doing it. Uh, maybe those aren't as geared as much toward tourists. He said they were preparing. Of course, they're taking precautions, as everybody is, clean, washing their hands even more, wiping down count, uh, doorknobs and, and everything. But uh, they haven't had to cut back on staffing or hours yet, according to him. Right, and I know I think the uh, Department of Transportation uh, is holding some kind of a news conference this afternoon talking about how they're stepping up their sanitation at the airport, providing more hand sanitizers in key places. So lots of, uh, I guess, reassuring signs or, or, or signs that, that, uh, that uh, different groups are trying to reassure people that it's okay to travel. Yes, well, again, we'll see. Um, we, I think we need to prepare for some changes here. Right. Okay. Well, I'll hold my hand if you hold my <laughs> I'll hold yours if you hold mine, right? Okay. <laughs> that sounds like a yeah. deal. Thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's reality check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we talk bread. In Hawaii, the starchy staple has long been synonymous with Love's Bakery. The company was founded in 1851 by Robert Love, a baker from Glasgow, Scotland. He had arrived on island with his family via a steamship from Sydney, Australia. Within a month of arriving, he had started his baking business, and two years uh, later, he opened his retail bakery in down, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, and two years later, he opened his retail bakery in downtown Honolulu. Today, the bakery has 206 kinds of bread, seven varieties of buns and rolls, and 14 varieties of cake. But back then, the main business for Honolulu bakers was to rebake old bread from visiting ships or supplying the ships with the biscuits known as hardtack. Loves added uh, shortening to the hardtack and came up with the cracker that is still beloved today. Do you know what's the name of that cracker? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. We've just hit the halfway mark of the legislative session, and one of the bills that HPR's Ryan Finnerty has been tracking has to do with a carbon tax. Ryan is here this morning. So tell us about this bill and, and, and what's the plan? Basically, it would be a tax on carbon emissions, and it's widely held up by economists across the political spectrum as a way to reduce carbon emissions um, and to, to combat climate change. And it basically, it's a, it's a general idea in economics to address something that's called an externality. And an externality is anything, uh, the, the byproduct of some economic activity that isn't reflected in the price of a particular 
good or service. And so in this case, carbon emissions and the, uh, the climate change that they cause are what's called a negative externality because they have a cost or a negative impact to society. And they're a negative externality from the use of fossil fuels. And the basic idea is that the cost of carbon emissions and of climate change is not reflected in the price of gasoline or electricity generated by coal or natural gas. And that if you built that cost to society into the price of those different fuels and that type of transportation and that electricity, that it would be much higher and then people would use less of it and then you would have a, a lesser impact on the environment. And there's a been an idea to address this problem for quite a while called um, a Pigouvian tax. It's named for an English economist, Arthur Pigou, who first proposed the idea. And he basically said that when you have a negative externality, which is an unborn cost to, of a particular product, as we said, that you can, the government can put a tax on that particular product to make up for that cost that isn't being paid by businesses and consumers. And I spoke with uh, University of Hawaii economist Michael Roberts about that, and he explains how that applies to carbon pollution. The essential idea is that pollution is a bad thing for society, and we don't pay for it. There's no price for pollution. Like transportation, you know, getting to work every day in our cars, we, um, you know, pay for the gas, and we pay for the car, and we pay the insurance, but we don't pay for the pollution that comes out of the tailpipe. And that's true for all kinds of pollutants. And the key idea here is that you have to put a price on it because carbon enters every aspect of our economy in ways that we cannot see. That means that there's a lot of different ways that you can reduce emissions. So if we could get a price on it, any price, it would nudge things in, in the right direction. And this is an idea that has widespread support amongst economists. Uh, former Fed chair Janet Yellen uh, last year organized a group of economists in support of passing a carbon tax. There is not currently a tax on carbon emissions either at the federal level or at any state level. There have been some experiments with it in a few select municipalities across the country, but nothing really on a wide scale that you would need to influence people's behavior on the level to affect emissions. Um, so Hawaii is now uh, exploring that idea. There have been, there are several bills uh, at the legislature this year that would have instituted a carbon tax of different levels and they would approach it in different ways. One of them was passed by the Senate uh, as at the first crossover, which means when the two chambers, as you know, pass different bills and then send them to the other chamber. Um, and uh, it will now go to the House, and if it were passed and signed into law by the governor, Hawaii would become the first state in the country to institute a carbon tax. It would be paid by wholesalers of fossil fuels, so the distributors who are bringing in gasoline or coal or natural gas to the islands, would they would be the ones paying the tax, but the bill does allow them to pass it on to retailers, utilities, and ultimately consumers, which makes sense because theoretically uh, a Puguvian tax needs to be paid by the people who are using the product for it to change behavior. So I, I know Senator uh, Carl Rhodes had uh, uh, proposed this thing, it was last year, uh, and it didn't go very far. And I think uh, they did ask uh, for a study from the state energy office to come up with a plan to help guide them, uh, you know, do we pass a, a polluter's tax or do we go with uh, some kind of offset, carbon offset? Yeah, that study is still forthcoming. Um, it's being done by some economists at the University of Hawaii. But for whatever reason, the Senate at least decided to move forward with uh, this proposal for a carbon tax anyway. There were even more proposals to do something similar in the House that don't seem to have advanced. You never know at the legislature. They could always resurrect something. Um, so it's kind of unclear if it will pass this year uh, in the House because it does need to be passed by both chambers. But there has been a lot of attention to, uh, given to decarbonizing Hawaii's economy. The governor and, and leaders in the legislature have really been pushing that as an idea. So uh, I guess they decided it was time to maybe move forward with a carbon tax even before that study comes out. Um, but there are some potential pitfalls with it, more in the way that it's structured. Um, one 
big thing is that a carbon tax is considered a regressive tax, which means it affects low-income people uh, proportionally more than people with higher income. That's kind of the opposite of our income tax, which is progressive. You pay more the more money you make. Um, this particular bill that was passed by the Senate includes some tax credits, income-based tax credits to offset that. Um, there's also the issue of how it will fit in with existing taxes like the gasoline tax that you, goes toward uh, to funding road construction. This one uh, doesn't look like any of the revenue would go towards road construction. It gets um, put into several different funds for things like energy security and environmental management. But that brings up one of the other issues with it, which is that for a tax like this, which, remember, is designed to change people's behavior and get them to use less of something, uh, that if you do it right, it will produce less revenue over time because people are consuming less of the thing that's taxed. And a good example of that is the uh, cigarettes, the cigarette tax. The state has a cigarette tax, um, and people are smoking less because the cigarette tax, or at least in part because the cigarette tax is very high. And I spoke with Tom Yamachika, who's president of the Tax Foundation of Hawaii, about that issue and how it can cause problems when you're deciding what to do with the money that's raised by one of these Paguvian taxes. Lawmakers need to be honest with themselves and with the public. You know, what do they want to do? Do they, do they want to change behavior do, or do they want to make a buck? One problem with the you know, existing Pigovian taxes that we now have, one of the goals of the tax is to be high enough to change people's behavior. And guess what? It's working. So people are consuming less, at least in the cigarette tax level. That's well, that's well documented. And so as a result, the amount of money that's going into the cancer center is going down. And and they're they're coming to the legislature in, in crisis mode saying, well, what are we going to do? You know, we can't survive like this. You are giving revenue from a, a source that is designed to go down over time. And Tom was referencing there that uh, money from the cigarette tax, the state cigarette tax, is programmed to go to fund the U University of Hawaii Cancer Center. But as that revenue has declined, as people are smoking less, the the funding stream for the cancer center has has diminished along with it, and they've had to get other money from the legislature to maintain operations. And so his point there is that if you're going to use this tax to raise money, you have to go into it knowing that it's going to decline over time if you set the tax high enough to actually change people's behavior. Tom was opposed to using uh, programming money, any money generated by the tax into special funds. He said it should just go into the state's general fund, so then it's kind of lumped in with everything else, and uh, you don't have specific programs necessarily relying on it for funding because it is um, an insecure or uncertain uh, amount of revenue in the long term. Now, I know there are a number of businesses that have, have joined a, a special committee, a council, to look at you know, how they can offset their pollution. I think Hawaiian Airlines sits on that committee and, you know, they don't want a carbon tax because, you know, they fly a lot of airplanes in and out of here. Yeah, and that was one of the ideas that Michael Roberts talked about is that there are so many different ways in which uh, this externality of carbon pollution is, is uh, felt in our economy. And kind of like he said, too many ways for uh, a planner, a central planner, to really like figure out. And so that by instituting the tax, you sort of let the invisible hand of the market address it, uh, uh, you know, at large, the dis dispersed across the many actions of millions of different people. Um, and economists seem to think that that's a much more efficient and effective way at reducing carbon emissions. Uh, rather than letting individual actors or special interests kind of direct their own behavior. There's even an idea that's gotten some support at the federal level that you could have a revenue-neutral carbon tax where you would tax, put a tax on carbon emissions that individuals and businesses would pay, but then at the end of the year it would all be refunded and so that your annual bill is zero but in the moment when you're making a decision as to whether or not to buy that airplane ticket or uh, fill up your car, you do have to pay more in the moment and that that will change your behavior over time, uh, but on an annual basis won't impact your pocketbook. Okay, we'll see where uh, this bill goes this session. But thanks so much, Ryan. Sure thing. We've been talking with Ryan Finnerty about the uh, carbon tax bill that is uh, 
uh, going through the legislative session. To read more about it, go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ala Moana Center, welcoming 2020, the Year of the Rat, with cultural activities and performances today through 5 p.m. Event details at alamoanacenter.com. When you hear this music, does it make you optimistic about love or give you cold feet? Lots of people argue that having these high expectations is problematic and it's harming the institution of marriage. How marriage became so high stakes most of what we think of as traditional marriage was not traditional at all, but a rather recent invention. And what we can do to fix it on the next Hidden Brain from NPR. Tonight at 7, following Says You. In today's Backyard Quiz, we looked at Love's Bakery, whose breads can be found across the state. The long history includes the original downtown location, which burned down in 1884. It did, however, survive the 1886 Chinatown Fire and the bubonic plague fire of the 1900s. Now, the company carried on and expanded an Evil A location in 1929 and a Kapahulu plant in 1943, but it also changed ownership a few times. Uh, ITT Continental Baking Company bought it in the 1960s, and then in 1981, First Baking Company of Japan bought the company and called it Daiichi Loves Bakery. During this time period, it moved to the current plant on Middle Street. But in 2008, local management bought the company, and it's currently loca- uh, locally owned with more than 300 employees. And it all started with the Scottish immigrant and baker, Robert Love. He added shortening to hardtack and created the Saloon Pilot Cracker. That's the answer we were looking for. And uh, congratulations to Janice Smith of Hilo. Uh, She got it right. She had fond fond memories of the cracker. Uh, She said before gluten was a thing, they would serve uh, serve it to a preschool class with peanut butter. Uh, Someone else says it's awesome with uh, sardines and tomatoes and uh, salami and cheese. Not bad either. That's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. This year, we marked the 100th anniversary of the suffrage movement, and in a nod to Women's History Month, we sat down with Joyce Nakano of the Friends of High Sam and local artist Reem Basus. They joined us to talk about a fundraising effort for the State Museum with a little bit of a twist. It's the 100th anniversary of Women's Right to Vote, centennial of the suffrage. I learned about it at the National Gallery in D.C., and thought, well, we should be celebrating it here in Hawaii. Being on the board of the Friends of the Hawaii State Art Museum, we have a project called the Portfolio Project, and we celebrate a handful of local artists to bring um, more focus and attention to the artists as well as to the museum. So this year we're using this uh, wonderful opportunity to talk about the centennial as well as the Hawaii State Art Museum, the only museum in the world that celebrates Hawaii's artists and um, the great artists of Hawaii. And and uh, we selected five of the top artists that were in a short list, and then we nailed it, narrowed it down to these five. They each put in so much thought into this project of celebrating this anniversary and created a very special portfolio of works that will be a gift for um, benefactor-level members of the Friends of the Hawaii State Art Museum. Sometimes when you ask people for money to, to give a donation, p- 
people say, well, why should we give to the Friends of the Hawaii State Art Museum? I mean, isn't the Hawaii State Art Museum free? It's not like the Honolulu Museum of Art where you have to pay for entry. So what am I giving you know, money for? So we have to go through the whole explanation, of course, that yes, it's funded by the state. Um, it's our tax money that pays for this museum. But what the Friends really feels like we can give additional support is the marketing and the attention. The state is very good at collecting the works and housing the works, but we're all about, well, hey, let's celebrate and market the museum to the tourists and to the local people. You know, let's celebrate it. Why isn't it open on Sundays, for example, when local people are off of work and there's free parking on the street? And why isn't there a sign up? Why does everybody think that Hi, Sam and Homa are one and the same, you know. It, so these are things like that that we are really trying to bring attention to and celebrate local artists. So therefore, the portfolio is just one way of saying, look, this is something that the artists are giving of themselves as a thank you for supporting Hawaii's art museum and the, the uh, artists of Hawaii. And Hi Sam does a great job. I mean, you go there and they've just got a wonderful collection for the small museum space that they have. Absolutely. It's a really, really special museum. There's no, you know, there's really nothing like it. And, uh, but we want more people to know about it. You know, we want the tourists to come there. Why isn't it being marketed as a cultural great in Hawaii? You come to Hawaii, you must see the works of the local artists. And today we are honored because we have a, a local artist in our midst who uh, uh, actually has one of her pieces in this portfolio, Irene Basu. So tell us about your contribution to this. So I was very excited when Joyce approached me and asked me to participate in this because I feel like, uh, I felt like I had been given homework. And so I started doing all this research and sketching and decided to come up with this uh, print, which, which also pays homage to my Middle Eastern heritage. And um, I decided to have the symbol of the hand with the finger uh, that is stained with uh, purple, which symbolizes an ink stained finger when you go to vote but it's also covering the mouth of a female. So it's, it does show that she has in fact voted, but we are still silenced all over the world and uh, we have a long way to go. Yes, in, in some Middle Eastern countries, women's rights are not quite on par with other countries in the West. It is a very patriarchal society. What's the message that you hope to underscore? Well, it's really important for us to, it, it's titled Silent Strong, and it's important for us to acknowledge the fact that we have made great strides, but we do have a long way to go yet. Talk about more of the symbolic meanings in, in this and the symbols in this piece. So we do have the arches as well, which is a nod to the Hawaii State Art Museum. So they're the arches from the museum. And they're also very reminiscent of arches from the Middle East. So I'm Lebanese and grew up with that kind of architecture. And it's very Mediterranean as well. And then we have uh, an, a print that I found from the uh, Women's Suffrage Association uh, on why women should vote. It's a list, and that's the background screen. And then if you notice that the finger is actually covering not only the mouse, but part of the nose, and the nose is uh, in Arabic script, and it says uh, unta, which means female. It just was very serendipitous that the word actually mimicked a nose. Mm. And so, um, gosh, this is just one of uh, five pieces? That's correct. And so describe uh, some of the other um, projects here. So we have Sally French's piece, which uh, is uh, this very charming uh, uh, creature, typical to Sally's work as well, and it's titled The Cone of Uncertainty, which deals with uh, geopolitical uncertainty uh, at any given time, really, in contemporary society. And then we have Peggy Hopper's piece, which has a necklace of the peace sign, a female sitting uh, with the necklace of the peace sign. And uh, it's uh, titled Still Trying to Imagine Peace. And it is a shame that uh, this necklace that she bought in the 70s is still very symbolic of something we have not yet attained. 
And then uh, Mary Matsuda has a tea leaf, which uh, the series uh, is of tea uh, leaves, and this one's titled Tea Portrait. Uh, the tea leaf in Hawaii is very symbolic of uh, so many things, rites of blessing and uh, wrapping food or flowers. It's a protection from evil, and it's really a very lingering and timeless symbol, which I think uh, we need nowadays more than ever. And then finally, with Deb Nimad's uh, print, uh, which is titled uh, Think About It, she has this beautiful juxtaposition of the symbols of the male and female, and, you know, we far outnumber <laughs> men, and yet uh, it took us 137 years after the founding of this country for women to attain the right to vote. So uh, it, that's quite unacceptable. And it's, it's a great reminder that now in light of contemporary politics and uh, in light of everything that's happening in the world for us to just take a moment and remember that uh, these women uh, have made great strides throughout history and that uh, I'm very honored to be representative of that. Think about it. I mean, these are all very provocative images and it's nice that they're, they're together as a set. For this membership, the benefactor level, it's usually $1,000. Um, so right now, just till the end of this month, we're giving it as a gift for $800, and then you can showcase the works in your home or your office, and it's a wonderful conversation piece, plus, you know, the, the works are, are beautiful. These five artists also have works in the uh, SFCA and in High Sam as well. Um, so we really just want to bring attention to the fact that it's, it's free, and you can go there and, and um, lose yourself, whether it's over your lunchtime, because it's still not open on Sundays, but it is open on Saturdays. And Saturdays, there's a fabulous program called Super Saturdays, where children are invited and um, you know they can do art projects. And we have First Fridays every month, where it's open till nine o'clock at night, and there's music and food. You know, There's a wonderful uh, restaurant there by MW called Artisan Cafe and they're open. Um, there's a museum gift shop, and uh, you know there's just a, a beautiful sculpture garden in the back. So it's really a great place to go that uh, we, we are all paying for out of our tax money. And, and the pool is delightful. I mean, it's a drained pool, but it's just a, a wonderful visual experience to be in that space. Yes, yeah, Doug Young's um, swimming pool where he, you know, they drain the pool, as, as you know, and they, um, cover the bottom with uh, clear blue glass, and so you have to take a kind of a second look. But they do fashion shows using that space and you know all kinds of um, little parties and activities down there, so it's a wonderful place to take your kids and run around. The kids love it. Yeah, <laughs> they dance around <laughs> all yeah. the time. And what's your, your favorite thing about the museum? Well, you know, about Museums in general, and High Sam specifically, uh, museums are very sacred spaces for me, and they really act as sanctuaries. I remember when um, September 11th happened, I was living in Washington, D.C., and you know, you, it's hard not to wonder what the significance of art is at a time like this, and especially as well today. But uh, I, I was reminded that the museum does function as the sanctuary where you go and you momentarily forget and you're immersed in someone's process and someone's world and it really elevates your thinking and helps you focus on the things that matter. So that's what a museum is to me. And High Sam's collection is really so um, finely edited and it's quite special. It's just really a shame for people not to indulge in that. And what about you? Is there something that just kind of stirs your soul when you think of High Sam? Well, I, I have to admit that uh, Jean Charlot's drummer is one that really just took my breath away the first time I saw it. And I think that is the painting that brought me back again and again and again the, you know, when I first tried to go there. Yeah, and then the, the museum does cater to so many young people. There's so many student groups, school groups that come through there. Um, you know, what, what can you say about the children's programs? Well, they have, you know, the, the of course, the school buses that go there. And I know that they're... Um, they're uh, enlarging the front to, to be able to have more buses and things. And, you know, uh, one of our dreams is 
that they can open on Sunday so that the children can take this excitement back to their parents and bring their parents back on the weekends and share their 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 uh, favorite works with them. But you know the the art projects on Saturday are free and we recently started a um, program with Kahawiki Village where um, you know we got a bus to bring the children from Kahawiki Village to uh, Hi Sam on a Saturday to, to share that with them. It's, it's really um, important. Children um, are such an important part of the whole art cultural experience. It's and we should mention that Kahawiki Village, it, it is a, a plantation style community and a lot of those families were homeless and thanks to a lot of brain power and uh, efforts through our community we have a model that can be used uh, to show what can be done so the right. museum helps to bring uh, those children right. down there and I, I just remembered a really uh, interesting story I came to Hawaii in 2003 on my honeymoon and I went to the museum and I absolutely fell in love with a drawing by the artist Yida Wang and uh, years later, I moved to Hawaii, and she actually was the one who hired me to teach at UH. And I was so glad to go back to my notes and remember that I had written her name down. And I, so it was through the museum that I had my entry point into Yida's work, and she's now a very good friend of mine. So opportunities like that. Yes, a welcoming place. Yes. And so we hope... Uh, that our listeners take advantage of this wonderful resource that we have in our community and a wonderful way uh, uh, through a donation to be able to get a gift back. Absolutely, and it's tax deductible. There you go. All right, (laughs) well, thank you both of you for for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. That was Hawaii artist Reem Basus and Joyce Nakano, who is on the board of the Friends of Hai Sam Hawaii State Museum, which is located on the corner of Veritonia and Richard Street in the downtown Capital District. That's it for us. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa and Aloha Friday. She goes mushroom hunting. I'm jealous. Got a mushroom story to share or a burning question about the coronavirus or a comment about our preparedness? Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. We are on Facebook and Twitter and iTunes and email works too. Talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find all our archive shows online on our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.